Well, what's up, everyone? Welcome to the Here in, Apolo- Here in Apologetics show. And if you're joining us via podcast, this should be episode 50. Um, today, I'm joined by Jay Medinwalt. We're going to be talking about kind of like an intersection between psychology and apologetics. He's the psychopologist on Twitter. All kinds of fun stuff. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Before we're going to get into it, I just want to say, as always, thank you to our supporters. This show is brought to you by you with your support at patreon.com slash Here in Apologetics. But with that out of the way, how are you doing, Jay? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. How are you? I'm doing really good, man. It's been it's been a long, busy time, but I mean, yeah. can't complain. Life is good. So, just to start off, can you talk a little bit about kind of like who you are, what you do for someone who doesn't know um, who you are, Jay? Yeah. So, um, it's to give you kind of rundown on my biography. I didn't really grow up in a Christian home at all. We were kind of agnostic. We went to church when I was really young, but stopped doing that. And uh, no one in my direct family really believed. And I personally came to a point of atheism um, that I kind of stepped away from. And so um, religion just wasn't a big thing for me. And I personally thought it was kind of stupid. And I thought if there was any God, he probably just wants us to live um, and be nice to each other. And that's about it because all religions are all false and made up. And so that was kind of how I lived. And so I was um, taking a psychology of religion course in college, and we had these kind of essays, you know, what do you believe about the afterlife and morality and all these kind of different big kind of worldview questions. And I was realized, one, I didn't know how to answer a lot of those, and two, um, some of the answers that I thought I knew, I was contradicting myself. And so I decided really to investigate all religion kind of rationally and see what, if any of it were true and how could I find some answers to these. And when I say religion, maybe broader to be worldview because um, I had a natural tendency towards atheism. And so I took that very serious and thought it was um, a a legitimate worldview to hold. And it was a major option for me. Um, So I stumbled on Christian apologetics and was blown away by it. But, you know, it was a 22 year old college student so my first thought was okay okay if this is true all this evidence is really true and points towards god and christianity then why didn't all my friends growing up ever share this with me why didn't when i visited friends church with friends why didn't they talk about this why haven't they told me this so i was like i must just be missing something everyone else knows this is kind of a joke and it's not real but i'm missing something here because i just haven't been involved in that community so i discarded it and didn't think it was real until I kind of went and read the atheists and um, critics and people who I thought were more objective about studying religion. Um, So in in my mind, this is the atheist scientists. And uh, what I found out was they weren't able to go as deep in the arguments and they weren't as um, updated on the arguments and the evidence. And so I was like, oh, crap, it really must be true. I wasn't like a bit shocked, um, but I was like, well, I guess I should believe them. That's the only kind of rational thing to do. So it's very kind of cold, rational choice for me that many people kind of don't have that same experience I recognize. And so then my kind of immediate thought was, okay, well, if it is true, then it doesn't make sense to be half-hearted and I should throw my whole self into it. And that's what I've done. And that was, you know, um, 15 years ago now. Um, and I've been involved in apologetics since then, and a big part of that has been to try to let people know what it is and it exists so they don't have that same experience with me. It's like, what do you mean there can be evidence for faith? And um, so being a psychology guy, um, and that being my background and uh, a big desire of mine, 
uh, that's kind of the route I've taken, especially as I've noticed in, in the apologetics world where I'm passionate about that as well, as there, there aren't really any psychologists doing apologetics. You need to look at William Lane Craig, J.P. Moreland, a lot of others. They, they've got their philosophy degrees. You know, people like Hugh Ross or um, uh, a lot of the other guys have you know physics degrees or uh, they have chemistry degrees, all these other things, a lot of you know New Testament scholars and theologians, but they aren't really in psychologists. So um, I thought it'd be good to kind of fill that gap and take advantage of kind of the opportunities that I've fallen into with just the opportunity to get education and opportunities in certain things. Um, so one of which being the Air Force sent me to get a master's in psychology. Um, and so they paid for me to do that. So be a fool not to take that opportunity of a full-time job um, as part of my Air Force career uh, to go to school and get a master's. So I did that and then I taught psychology for three years at the Air Force Academy and then uh, I got out and then through my VA benefits that I had gotten, they, they paid for me again to go back to school and that's when I went to seminary and got a degree in apologetics and then I decided after that, you know, I wasn't done with school. So uh, right now I'm doing a PhD in social psychology at Baylor. Mm. Yeah, man. Uh, so there's so much that's so interesting to me about like this this interrelation be between psychology and apologetics. Um, like you talked about, it's something that's not common. Like everyone else is that's in apologetics, probably their degrees are anything like philosophy, the hard sciences, things like this. Not really in the social science category, with the exception of like a New Testament um, criticism, something along those lines. So there's so much in psychology that interests me. I took a psych class in college for the first time and I was like, just wow, there's so much here on like developmental psychology. And that's just like a basic entry level class. Um, so you're, you're getting your, your doctorate from Baylor in social psychology. Can you talk a little bit about like for someone who has no idea what psychology is and then to so talk a little bit about like what psychology is and then talk about like what you're studying with social psychology? Yeah, so psychology is really a huge field, and a lot of people don't really understand that. They immediately, most people think psychology, okay, that's counseling, and just sitting in a room sharing your feelings, um, and then they kind of, for for a lot of people, not everyone, that's the extent to what they associate psychology with, and that's a part of it. But even when they're sitting in there, doing that in the clinical setting, there's a lot of science that goes behind it, and like, okay, is it? what methods are best to get people to talk and open up and how do we get them to change and grow and how do we get them be willing to get over their addiction or do they have that power within themselves and what techniques can we use? So um, that's a very much scientific endeavor, but really that's only kind of the tip of the iceberg when it comes to psychology. Um, psychologists, you know, if you read any of the researchers' science on parenting, leadership, um, marriage and relationships, um, how we get along with people, uh, bias, um, how we make moral decisions. Um, a lot of the marketing and campaign, um, like political stuff, whether it's like, here's how we should kind of tweak our message to get more voters or get more people to buy our product. All of that is primarily done by psychologists. There's a lot of overlap with you know people in say um, behavioral economics or economics and um, some different disciplines uh, for sure um, political science and others but um, business people is a, a big overlap too as far as like best hiring practices and um, how do you do leadership you know there's big overlap there with psychology and business but um, ultimately that's kind of the breath anything that humans are involved with and even some extent uh, animals psychology touches on that in some way. And so there's a lot of richness that can be added by taking that kind of knowledge of um, people 
and applying it into psychology or into apologetics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, can you talk a little bit about like, um, what are you, I don't know where you're at with your doctoral program, um, but, but what specifically are you kind of studying in psychology right now? And then uh, if you're in your doctoral thesis, you're kind of figuring out what you want to write about. What, what are you going to be studying um, in depth? Yeah, so yeah, I, I guess I left that out, so thank you. Um, so psychology uh, is specifically looking at kind of the ways that we interact with each other socially. So it's kind of the bridge between kind of the rest of psychology and so, sociology, although it's kind of a major part of psychology in and of itself. And so what that we look at, it's often put together so social and personality psychology, which to some people may seem separate, but because we just, the two are so closely intertwined between those social factors and those personal factors, uh, they've kind of been blended together into a kind of a single subdiscipline within psychology. And so what we look at is, uh, you know, kind of really comes down to anything and where we're engaging with other people. Uh, so religion is a big part of it. Psychology, religion falls kind of mostly into social psychology. So why do we believe what we believe? Um, how do people change their beliefs over time? And how does the, the community affect their beliefs? And in fact, I just uh, finished co-authoring a couple papers on adolescent religious belief. Um, and so another area would be positive psychology. So how do we kind of express virtue or what is virtue kind of from a scientific side? And how does that affect the rest of our other actions. Um, and so any of these things like that, a lot of the big famous studies people hear about, like the Milgram study, uh, where you know you had someone, people, he brought people into a lab and made them think that they were shocking another person, uh, that social psychology, um, the Zimbardo uh, Stanford prison study, uh, that is social psychology where they he kind of brought in these college students and uh, randomly assign them to either a role as a prisoner or a guard in this kind of make-believe prison that they created, right? And then he observed to see what would happen. That's social psychology. Um, and so a lot of those big kind of fun, well, fun, maybe uh, wrong word for it, but really interesting, like, wow, humans really act that way, experiments that you might hear about or read about in popular media, uh, that's social psychology, mm -hmm. not always. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of good stuff. I know you also have done some research on the Enneagram as well, which is, I mean, a topic for a different day, but I know that you're very active in all of this stuff. And I, I think it's so, I just find it so interesting. Um, I really appreciate the work you're doing, bringing apologetics and with your training in psychology, because exactly because of the things you, you brought up is stuff that's valuable, that can be very valuable information to Christians. Um, if we can learn how to understand it, and you're, you're obviously doing the heavy lifting there. So, what got you interested in psychology in the first place? Because I know you've done psych you started in your undergrad in psychology and you've stuck with it ever since. So like what what, what interests you about psychology? And so there's kind of two prongs as far as what really got me sure that I wanted a career in psychology. One was uh, kind of always growing up, I, I felt like I've never really understood people that well, or maybe not that I, I haven't understood them, but uh, I just recognize that other people weren't like me. And um, so even as a young kid, I was very kind of driven towards hockey. I was very kind of rational and thoughtful about every choice that I made. And, you know, if I learned something, you know, wasn't the best, I almost like, okay, I won't do that then. Um, so little things like that and, um, served me pretty well, you know, academically and um, in hockey, growing up playing hockey. But 
the more I did that and able to focus on that and realize that I noticed more and more that other people aren't that way and I just couldn't understand that um, that reason and you know I've even been tested for autism and uh, whether or not I'd be on the autism spectrum and is kind of a continuum right where at some point you reach a certain score you're on the spectrum but there's this weird spot which is where I fall and I think probably a lot of other apologists actually would fall in this kind of weird socially kind of awkward stage where we uh, are very thoughtful and rational about many different things that the average person um, might not really give any thought to, but then they're not really um, meeting some of the criteria for um, being on the autism spectrum. And so that was one part of it, just wanting to understand people in a better way. Uh, but the other was when I was you know, 10 or 11, uh, my mom started taking some night classes in college and she took a psychology course and she would come back and tell me about the things they're learning and the kind of neat classroom um, exercises and things they would do where they would you know, kind of play mind tricks on the students, and I was like really fascinated by that. So, with those two things going on, I knew from you know about that age to eleven or twelve that I wanted to be a psychologist. Yeah. So, you talked a little bit about how psychology can uh, impact apologetics and things like that. So, like in a general sense, if if someone was going to ask you, like, why? How does psychology matter in relation to um, Christianity and apologetics? How would you respond? Yeah, so there's a kind of couple ways I think that it can do that. One is I think psychology is a really secular field, um, very hostile in many ways towards religion, and it doesn't have to be. Um, and so a lot of people, especially kind of lay people who aren't reading the actual scientific studies and things that come out of psychology, just take that kind of popular view of psychology. Um, a lot of times that goes back to Freud, which has pretty much been um, almost completely put by the wayside now. But you know, there's a few things with Freud that stick around and are still valid. But for the most part, a lot of the Freudian things with psychology um, are just kind of historical things that um, we learn about but aren't really used much today. Um, and so you get this idea that people will say, oh, well, um, religion is just a, you know, because people have daddy issues or mommy issues and they have bad relationship with their parents. And so that's why they believe. So you, you get a lot of people using kind of pop psychology in that way against religion. Um, and so psychology and actually knowing the science of psychology can actually say, well, that's not the case. Okay. So it's kind of, again, two-pronged approach is, well, actually, some of the research shows that um, non-believers um, are the ones who are more likely to have had issues with their parents growing up or um, have trust issues and maybe be um, um, uh, less, less trusting in a way that is not really beneficial. Um, again, not always the case because a lot of these studies are looking at um, populations rather than individuals, but that would be one problem approach. But the other is just to point out that anytime someone is using kind of social science to support their uh, religious views, it, it's kind of got to be taken with a grain of salt because you can usually just turn that same application around and turn it to the other side. And so one application would be the design argument. Someone might say, well, humans have a tendency to the um, design and meaning in random patterns of data. Right. And this is true. It's um, pretty broadly accepted within the field of psychology. And so some people say, well, therefore, people look at animals and say, well, God designed it when God didn't design it. They're just falling victim to that bias. 
right? And so they use that as an argument against Christianity. But you say, well, let's turn this around the other side. You can just as likely say the same thing with people who accept evolution. You say, well, you're looking at evolution as this design process where you're seeing this meaning and connection between randomness that isn't there. And so just having kind of that balance between, um, in this case, psychology and philosophy, uh, being able to challenge these premises and look at uh, what's going on in their reasoning. Yeah, a lot of interesting stuff you bring up here. Um, yes, uh, sorry, did you say that the other part with psychology and apologetics is a lot to do with how we reach other people too. Uh, huge literature of psychology on the methods of persuasion and how we can um, persuade people more effectively um, without being manipulative or tricky, but you know, getting people to think more and think better and so that they can come to better decisions about whether it's religious beliefs or political beliefs or just even have a conversation better without getting mad and upset at each other. So something I was thinking about as you were talking is you brought up the idea that psychology is very secular. And I mean, you can think about some of the what society would consider like the greatest psychologist, whether it's Sigmund Freud or Nietzsche or Erickson or Piaget, um, famous psychologists. Most of these people, I believe, are either atheists or definitely not Christians. Um, so do you think in like psychological theories, they're developing theories, they kind of like um, negate God from kind of things like this? Like they, they try to... Uh, explain things in just a naturalistic sense like do you think that there's room to, for like this question is a little vague because i'm just kind of like making it up on the spot here um but do you think there's do you understand what i'm saying with like this this field is very secular what what, what do you think they're missing um if, if anything in their theories with negating god yeah so you, you do get some psychologists you know like freud being an early psychologist would you know explicitly tried to show and use these explanations to see, well, therefore God doesn't exist, um, which I don't think you can really do with psychology. It's it's a different kind of category of things we're testing. Uh, and so to look at something in psychology and say, well, humans think this way, and therefore God doesn't exist, um, doesn't really work. So you have to go to another level and kind of philosophical reasons, kind of akin to the is-ought fallacy we often hear um, when you say, well, evolution happens this way. This is how people act. Um, and Sam Harris does this a lot, you know, just in his kind of moral reasoning stuff. You say, well, humans or animals act this way, therefore it ought to be this way. Um, and that's a widely accepted fallacy. You, you have to make the case as far as why that is. And you don't do that based on empirical evidence. You have to do that based on reason. Um, but a lot of psychologists, probably the, the, the most of them, even if they're unbelievers, they're, they're not necessarily trying to disprove God or Christianity in any sense, even in psychology, religion. And certainly there are probably some that do that, but they're really trying to shine a light on understanding these mechanisms of what's going on in the mind. And so a Christian might look at it and say, okay, well, this is how God created us to be. Whereas the atheist might look at it and say that, well, this is how we were evolved to be. Um, but either one, like, you're still resting on that same conclusion and essentially it comes back to is this how we were evolved or this how we were designed and you can't really make that case without again using that reason to get to that so um, again that distinction between trying to prove or disprove god with psychology is really hard to do um, can maybe have some uh, some evidence that might help inform our view 
coming from social sciences, but for the most part, it really comes down to can you do that kind of heavy legwork in in the um, philosophically with your reason to make that case um, apart from it. And so, yeah, kind of the same as we often hear with evolution, right? Did God use evolution or not? And so even people who, Christians who accept evolution, they'll say, well, that's the way God wanted evolution to happen or whatever. It doesn't explain necessarily God away. It just explains that future feature of humans or animals to some extent. Does that answer your question or is it still a, a too well, answer? It was a pretty vague question. Um, yeah. So I mean, I, th I think you it was good. Something I kind of, I think a better way of phrasing what I was wondering um, is why do you think psychology is so secular in general? Um, there's not a lot, like you talked a little bit about that. Why do you think psychology is so secular in general? If it's just uh, psychologists. Yeah, so it's, I'm, I'm, it's hard to say exactly why. I'm, I'm sure some of it has to do with a lot of um, Freud's work and how he was explicitly anti-religious in many ways. Um, and thought that he could explain away religion. And so, you know, you get a lot of people who maybe have those same sentiments would flock to it. And so a lot of the early people in psychology um, probably held similar views. And so that is probably one um, reason. The other might be um, it is easy to reach some of those conclusions if you can explain religious belief or certain beliefs in some ways or um, understand bias in some ways uh, and how humans um, how biased the human mind is to say, well, maybe it wasn't designed by God, or maybe these the reasons people believe in God, because a lot of people believe just on intuition or how they were raised and say, well, that's not really a valid reason for belief um, rationally. And so I can kind of transcend that since I know that's kind of how human bias works and that's the way people think, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's true. And so people get kind of... Um, often in psychology that um, very good in psychology, very good in experimental methods and um, statistics and things like that, but um, they aren't always well trained in philosophy and aren't thinking through a lot of their research um, philosophically uh, and kind of the alternative explanations for them, um, particularly as they might pertain to God or not. Um, but again, that's not the case with everyone, especially in certain sub-disciplines of psychology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, so let's take a look at some of uh, the specific ways of how you talked about how psychology can impact apologetics. Um, one of the things you talked about is that this idea of bias in decision making, uh, just the messages and through what you've been talking about. So I'm curious, like, obviously, I'm sure there's a, a lot of literature that's been written on this, and you could probably go for hours about this literature. But just like in, in a simple sense, like how, how does psychology talk about like our bias and our decision making um and how does it impact apologetics yeah so one one important way would be kind of coming down to memory and so how we remember things and a lot of people think that okay i have this memory of this event and my memory seems really certain i'm really certain of it so my memory must be completely accurate and uh, as as reliable as say uh recording of the event um, but psychologists can test this in a lot of different ways and we find out that our memories often have holes in them or that we get things wrong we change small details or that our memories can be shifted with small words and so i'll, I'll teach some classes on apologetics and uh, why we need apologetics and one of the videos and activities i'll do with the audience is to have them watch a video and i actually i, I got this one from the show brain game so if you've ever seen the 
brain games. I yeah, I remember that show. I, I play a lot of those um, clips and things from there in, in my apologetics lessons to make the point of how it relates to religion and decision-making. But one is that uh, these people, they don't know what's going on, but they are um, brought in and used for this experiment for the show while they witness a car accident. And so then they're interviewed by a police officer about the incident. And so the police officer asks them word for word, exact same question, how fast was the car going when it bumped into the other vehicle? And then he asks the other half of the participants, the people, how fast was the car going when it smashed in the other vehicle, right? So this is after the event happened, he changed one word, bump versus smash. And you get people whose estimates are 20 to 30 miles per hour apart when the vehicle was only going 25 miles an hour. So you get people seeing, you know, the bump side, you know, 20 to 30 miles an hour. And when he says smash and people estimating like 40 to 60 miles an hour. And so little things like that are really easy to affect our memory. And so when we say, well, the gospels are eyewitness testimonies or maybe even secondary removed from eyewitness testimonies, how do we know those are reliable? Um, and so it takes a deeper knowledge of memory and knowing how some things within memory are stable and some things aren't and how that can affect our decision making there um, to show that yes, even though memory isn't perfect like we think, it's still really reliable, especially in big major events and when we have corroboration. Um, so that's kind of one way. Uh, the other might be again kind of related to that in peer just decision making, like uh, what we accept as true or how we come to the decisions. A lot of people will say, "Yeah, I thought about." you know, X, Y, and Z rationally, or I came to this decision rationally, and it could be about political issues, religious issues, or whatever the case may be. But even in those cases where we stop and slow down and think about things, there are a lot of unconscious factors that are affecting our decisions. And we don't really, well, we don't, we don't know about those. We can't have access to those by definition, uh, but they're shown over and over in um, research to have an effect on people. So one example comes from Dan Ariely, who's a researcher on bias, and he asked his class, uh, and he did this in a, uh, in a set of experiments, asked his class to write down their social, the last two digits of their social security number, and then after they wrote that down, right, so kind of pretty much completely random, he had them um, pretend to bid on certain items that he had in class. And so what he did with that is he showed while well, those who had higher social security numbers were more likely to bid higher on these um, different items than those who had lower digits. And again, it's called the anchoring effect. People have this anchor in their mind and this idea, and it kind of primes them to think higher numbers versus lower numbers and ended up being a pretty large effect. Uh, but then again, when asked, did this affect your decision making at all? People said, no, it didn't have any effect. But then when you look at the group as a whole, it did. There was significantly higher in what they were willing to bid based on their social, higher having higher social security numbers. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, uh, good question comes from the live chat. It kind of fits everything that we're going here. I know you talked about this a little bit. It's from Roxby. How's it going, Roxby? Uh, she says, uh, would psychology help us understand why people are drawn to one set of beliefs over another, such as one being drawn to a new age instead of a Jehovah's Witness? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and actually, this is kind of um, where I'm not directly this question, but this type of research is where I kind of expect that a lot of my career will go in psychology, um, regardless of where I end up after I finish my degree, uh, because there there's some research on a little bit of this, but 
it's really kind of not as much as many of us within the church might like to see. Um, and it, actually some of the interesting things right now uh, are being done as far as like conspiracy theories and looking at different kind of personality traits or social traits that might lead some people to be more willing to accept conspiracy theories. Um, but, and I know some of the, the research there and I'm not specific in anything with the new age, but I know there's often a crossover there or looking at people who are uh, willing to accept certain conspiracy theories are maybe open to um, different new age beliefs. I just came across a paper a couple days ago on um, new age beliefs actually, um, but I don't remember what it said as far as like different personality or social factors that influenced it. But that's definitely something in psychology that uh, can be studied. I don't know if it has or not, but that's the type of things I plan on looking at you know, throughout my career and seeing this because this is kind of what fascinates me and helping understand like, okay, if this person has a new age belief or is a Jehovah's Witness or whatever their beliefs, what might be the most likely method to help them think through these doctrines or beliefs that they have to see that maybe they don't hold up to scrutiny. And it's not always the same with different um, religious groups for sure. Um, a lot of the research on um, religion and deconversion also um, would relate to this. And, and again, there's plenty out there on that. And that's a whole other topic of itself. But yes, um, to answer the question, there, there's stuff there. I don't know exactly what it says, but um, hopefully I'll have an answer directly to that question maybe in a few years. Yeah, whenever you do, I'd love to talk with you about this. This is why I'm so interested in what you're doing in psychology. And I mean, I don't think that's the route I'll go. I mean, I could, I really have no idea what's going to happen with me. Uh, but I'm really excited with people like you doing this because it's it, there's so many interesting questions that are yet to be answered that are going to be so beneficial to the church. Um, so well, another thing I want to talk a little bit about is this idea of bias. So um, specifically with atheism, because I, I don't know how much research you've done into this with your uh, your, your programs and such, but I mean, you have a lot of atheists or other people who claim I'm completely unbiased, I have no bias, um, things like that. And then you'll have people claim that the other side is co completely biased, um, whether it's a Christian to an atheist or an atheist to a Christian or a Christian to Muslim, you know, it, it goes in all directions if everyone thinks they're unbiased and everyone else is biased. So how much does bias play a part in like, obviously every person is different, but how much does bias play play a part in our decision-making regarding our like religious beliefs? Yeah, I mean, I would say it probably has a huge effect and probably bigger than we realize, but at the same time, everyone is biased. So you can't say, well, um, I'm not biased because I'm uh, X and fill in the gap. And I know a lot of atheists try to claim that they are unbiased. Um, and I actually had this conversation with an atheist before who said, you know, atheists are less biased than Christians because Christians have this firm doctrine and things that they have to believe in. Um, and so I showed him a couple papers and showing atheists were biased and said, oh, well, I still think atheists are less biased. So I'm kind of revealing the bias there in a kind of funny way in which evidence wasn't going to sway him um, as someone who claimed to be unbiased. Um, and so I, the biggest factor usually in bias is the the extent to which a person is committed to some sort of belief. It doesn't really necessarily matter what the belief is, but the closer that belief is tied to their identity, the more likely that they'll exhibit kind of biased tendencies towards other views. So um, not willing to consider other views, uh, responding without thinking, using you know straw man arguments against it, or um, 
red herrings where or um, they they you know are refuted or something doesn't sit well with their belief and so they you know change the subject or move on to something else and um, so yeah and it's hard because it, the harder you try to be unbiased yourself right and not to say anyone can actually do it but as you try to do that and you really try to make sure you're doing a good job of understanding other point of views and listening to other people would i say be the best step of overcoming bias which to a lot of people is scary because i think in many cases though once you do that regardless of where your view is you'll realize that um, people on your side people you've um, liked and shared things from on social media that You'll, you'll start to see you know, kind of your own side as bias, which can be a little scary, again, regardless of where you are and say, well, maybe we're not so far apart on this issue, or maybe the, you know, the atheist makes a good point here, or maybe the Christian actually has, you know, um, a, a good point on this other topic. And uh, that can get a little scary because it, uh, a big part of bias is in-group and out-group behavior. And um, that's a big factor to consider. And so to, to start pointing out when your own group is wrong and the out group might be right or even um, have a good idea and something um, gets a lot of pushback then from your own group. Um, there gets to be kind of group censorship issues or kind of punishment, whether it's social type of things. And so you see that, but um, it's worth it because ultimately we, um, uh, the better you can remove your bias, the better you can um, seek truth and discover truth. And ultimately I think uh, that's what God wants from us, but um, it can certainly be hard. I'm not even saying it's completely possible, but um, it's hard, hard work just intellectually, but it can also be hard work emotionally because it can be scary, um, especially for people who have religious beliefs um, or beliefs about religion. I say that way because that um, includes atheists um, who obviously aren't religious, but have beliefs about religion. Um, if what your whole family has similar beliefs and you're all the same or your group of friends and you start to question that like that can be really emotionally scary um, not to mention cognitively difficult and require a lot of time and effort so um, but again I would say it's worth it as hard as it is and um, you'll grow from it and uh, know your own position even better than before which is a good thing as well assuming you maintain your same position sometimes you might change and it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing to change views on things um, if that's where the evidence leads. Mm. Yeah, there's so much interesting stuff you bring up. And one thing I want to talk to you a little bit about is the idea of morality, moral reasoning. It's amazing how much, that, as you talk, there just isn't psychological research. And I think that's something made about psychology. Um, but specifically regarding like morality, let's start with this. I think there's an interesting, I don't know, like what, where is um, psychology in general with the psych regarding psychologists? Where are they regarding? Like, would you say the majority, minority, on a lot? Like, where where are psychologists regarding the idea of like objective moral truth? Like, would a lot of psychologists accept that or deny that? Like, where where is psychology on this? Yeah, so um, this is somewhat of an area I'm working on getting into more myself. My, my lab actually is called the um, Science of Virtues Lab. And so we study virtue, which is more the kind of the positive side on morality, like how to be virtuous and live virtuously, um, but more of the moral psychologists or people who study morality from a psych science perspective um, don't necessarily look at virtue. They're just looking at kind of how people make moral decisions. Uh, and it may or may not relate to virtue, but so they're kind of separate sub-disciplines to some extent and 
Yeah, I would say you're kind of all over the board with that. Some people within the field will say, yes, there's objective morality. Um, here's how we get to it. Uh, others will say we don't. Probably the most well-known, at least in popular literature on morality, is Jonathan Haidt's work. Uh, so he wrote the book The Righteous Mind um, and The Toddling of the American Mind, um, which are great books. But his theories, um, it's called Moral Foundations Theory, is highly debated among psychologists, especially once you start crossing disciplines from moral psychologists to developmental psychologists to even anthropologists who get in on it so um, that's debated and so some of them you know will say well uh, they don't like moral foundations theory because it's relativistic but again some people will use moral foundations to say here's how we have objective morality so again a lot of it comes down to those kind of philosophical underpinnings of what people um, believe in what they bring to this um, but I, I would argue that um, again, the the science of morality isn't objective or subjective. Um, you can't get to that from from simply the empirical evidence, uh, because the, the empirical evidence is merely telling you how people make moral decisions. They're not weighing in on whether they're making decisions correctly or coming to the correct conclusions necessarily, which is what you would want for an objective morality or subjectives. And so again, that's a philosophical decision, which. Um, some psychologists recognize that they can't make those uh, decisions based on empirical evidence, but some don't. And some will say, well, this leads to um, objective morality, and here's what it is um, based on usually my worldview. It's funny how you know, they always find it that it supports their own view in most cases, um, but not always. Um, Yeah, awesome, man. Um, so something I want to talk a little bit about with you is this idea of like conversion, deconversion. Um, so we'll, we'll start with deconversion. Let's just uh, talk about people leaving Christianity. Um, like what are some common like psychological trends you see in like someone who, who would deconvert? I saw one person in the chat was like, is there a correlation between atheism and fatherlessness? Um, so like, what are some what are some common things that you see among uh, in, in psych psychological research among people who deconvert from Christianity? Yeah, so deconversion can kind of be a topic in and of itself that can be very specific um, and i actually have a friend um, joel furches uh, who does apologetics as well who's kind of becoming an, or trying to become an expert in that field and doing a lot of work on specifically deconversion and looking at things from that perspective so he'd be maybe a better person to talk to for that specific question but um, usually what we look at in our research is more the state of someone believes or they don't and then looking at different patterns kind of in their past history um, that, and looking for trends within that and so often uh, I see some of the things that affect religious beliefs so parents religious belief is a big factor um, so if you as a parent believe and practice or not just say you believe but actually you know you go to church and you pray and you tithe and you do religious activities together as a family um so both internal and external so you know the internal being um you know the way you view god and how you think about god and those kind of quiet practices you do on your own versus the external being more you know the going to church and things that are outwardly seen by other people so a combination of those things those are pretty good are some of the better predictors of religious belief and so a family who's high in that um, is more likely to have kids who are high in that um, 
as well. But again, that's not always the case. Um, both parents play a big role in uh, a child's eventual religious belief, but moms tend to have a bigger effect. Um, but again, which, uh, that's odd because in some other factors of um, adolescent well-being or things that affect people adulthood later, sometimes the, the father has a bigger effect. So it all depends. Um, but in this case, it seems like it is. So the, the more that the mom prays and goes to church and takes her religious belief serious, the more likely the kid will be. And when I say moms have a bigger effect than dads, it's not like a huge difference. It's a fairly small difference. So it's not to say dads are off the hook. And they shouldn't be because, again, having both parents who believe in practice is a bigger thing. Um, having conversations, being open. So, one, again, one of the biggest factors we found in some of the research and on that paper I recently wrote or co-authored, um, when it's pretty common for people to go through times of religious doubt and crises, um, almost to the extent that it, says it would be surprising, more surprising when people don't do it. Um, but when they do go through that, uh, one of the factors that, that affects whether or not or the, whether or not they come through that as a believer or unbeliever is whether they went to supporting sources or unsupporting sources. And so a lot of that speaks to the relationship between the parents and the child or the, um, the church and the youth group leader and the child if that those if they've built a trusting relationship where people can the kids can ask questions and talk about these issues without being fear of being criticized or, you know, told to just have faith, then uh, they're more likely to um, stay within the church. And so I would say the number one thing you can do as a parent is to have a warm, loving, um, and open relationship with your children. And again, that's not to say don't ever um, discipline your kids or anything like that, but the general tendency to have um, open dialogue with them, um, model good behaviors yourself, um, don't have the attitude, do what I say, not what I do. Kind of thing, um, and so when your kids come to you with questions, uh, hopefully they will. Um, you can either answer them directly or work through finding answers with them instead of having them go and looking at, um, you know, Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins for answers, um, which maybe says something about confirmation bias. But there's a time and a place to look into other resources um, uh, because of, during that adolescent years, particularly, people are very, um, very vulnerable. Um, and they're not necessarily the best critical thinkers yet, so they can't really evaluate evidence very well. Um, and so you have to kind of teach them how to do that. Um, and so walking through and giving them a good solid base to start at some, so what to prepare them when they go and encounter these other arguments elsewhere. Yeah, man. There's just so much interesting stuff that you bring up, and I think I'm. I think a lot of people just are going to be uh, amazed with all the research that can affect Christianity. Yet find the field of psychology uh one kind of like last topic i want to talk to you a little bit about is mental health um it's it's a really interesting topic on the role of mental health in the church what do the statistics this the statistics say about things like anxiety depression uh things like that so could you just talk a little bit about like what's the current state of america regarding mental health i know some people see this some sort of like crisis and then i actually was reading from someone i don't remember who but it was this either a psychiatrist or psychologist who argued today that uh, it's actually not as big of a deal as we think it is so where where's our country um in, in terms of mental health yeah so one thing is to say out the front like my, i don't specialize in clinical psychology 
Um, so that's not necessarily my field, but I would say just being in the field of psychology, I probably a little better foot on the pulse in there, especially um, with the ministry work I do than most people. Um, so I try not to overstep my bounds. Um, I would say certainly it's an issue. Um, I don't know if it's a as big of an issue as it's often made out to be or not. I can't speak to that. Um, I know the church is getting better at handling mental health issues. Um, seminaries are offering more classes on that and dealing with it um, in a better way, especially having um, psychologists teach those classes and train um, pastors. And so I think the church is getting better at handling those, um, but still probably has a long way to go. Probably the biggest thing I encounter um, within the church and um, is maybe a misinformed view of mental health. Uh, people look at mental health as it's kind of being, oh, well, you have mental health issues. Well, you just need to pray more, or read the Bible more, or just know more truth, right? Whether you memorize it or know it. Um, and so they kind of viewing it from a, a very strict one-sided dualist perspective where they're saying, well, mental health or the mind resides in the soul. And to fix the soul, you need these soulish things or spiritual things to fix the soul. And that's all that you have to do. And, and that's just a really overly simplistic view of mental health. Um, certainly there are aspects to, to mental health that might be spiritual, and I'm not discounting that. But uh, psychologists usually look at things from a, a biopsychosocial model. So biologically, psychologically, socially, what is going on in a person's life and how does that contribute to um, thriving or mental health issues or just how we interact in general. And, so um, there's probably a lot of different analogies to use, but I would say the, the big thing, whether you're dealing with mental health yourself or know someone who is and you don't understand why, um, think in terms of brain wiring. Um, so whatever the reason is that their brain, um, maybe it's an issue with the soul, If again, because there's a, theologically, there's a lot of different views of the soul and the body and how they interact, or some people are, monists right they believe the body mind soul all kind of one thing um, some people are dualists so they would believe that like the mind and the soul are one and then you kind of body and brain are a separate thing and then there are even people who believe that they're three so there's um mind soul and spirit right or um, body soul and spirit would be three separate things um, but regardless of your view on that everything that might be happening with the spirit or soul has to come through the brain um, so therapy, mental health, a lot of that can be um, maybe not fixed, but at least attended to through um, kind of therapy or therapeutic techniques that are working towards the brain or even through medications. Again, not, to, um, not my job to be telling people when or not to take medications, but again, they shouldn't necessarily be opposed to it theologically. Um, because there, there can be things going on physically in the wiring of our brains and how our, um, if we think of our, our brain kind of as this just balled up clump of wires, right, that are connected to each other, it's a physical thing. And so if wires are connected to things that they're not supposed to be, it can take a lot of time through talking things out, through therapy, through um, learning proper associations between things to kind of correct that wiring within the brain. And so that those mental health issues can be Kind of resolved or lessened at least um, so that's probably the biggest pushback or questions i get with people um, struggling with mental health so 
if you are struggling with mental health or you know someone who is, there's no shame in going to therapy um, or even a secular therapist. I often people will ask me about seeing you know a pastor or um, a therapist for counseling, and again, it depends on the extent of what they're going through and what they might need. Um, but if they have a really severe kind of issue going on or some major trauma from their past, a pastor is probably not equipped to handle that, even if um, he or she really thinks that they are. Um, they probably don't have that training and education unless they have you know, a PhD in clinical psychology or um, something close to, to that kind of credentials. So um, again, no shame in seeking help. It's not uh, something we should fear doing either. Um, we shouldn't think of it really much different or any different than, say, a broken arm or other kind of physical injury. Hmm. Uh, we'll go to a couple questions here in the live chat as we enter the third period. I guess we use a hockey analogy. Um, so first question is from Warrior Woman joining us from Australia. How's it going? Um, so do you get any pushback from the churches? Like I could, I could see in my mind like a, a super conservative church saying like you're entering this secular feel and trying to like bring these secular ideas into the, the church. Do you ever get pushback from your work in psychology? Yeah. So anyone who's been in apologetics probably knows they kind of get a lot of pushback from both those outside the church and then people within the church and psychology, I feel it's kind of the same in many ways. And you get a lot of pushback from people within the church. So your own kind of side, um, uh, thankfully in many ways, you don't necessarily get that from outside. Um, at least from, unless it's people trying to um, bolster pop psychology over kind of real discipline psychology. But um, yeah, so again, the, the church sometimes will push back. Uh, if you're familiar with biblical counseling, it's uh, kind of theologians who do counseling from a biblical perspective. And a lot of the different organizations for that, their website will specifically say we reject the findings of modern psychology. Um, again, most not all. There are a couple people in, in the biblical counseling movement who have um, psychology degrees, but most of them don't really know or understand what they're talking about um, when they're rejecting psychology. So they're rejecting these kind of popular notions of psychology uh, that we get in pop media, but not real kind of empirical psychology. And so then they bash that pretty hard and try and deter other people from it. And you get a lot of that in the congregations and people you know, asking those questions Well how can you be a Christian and a psychologist or, um, you know, uh, another big one being on LGBTQ issues and thinking that all psychologists take a standard liberal view on LGBTQ um, topics. Um, so yeah, I definitely get a lot of pushback from churches. Probably most people I talk to once I actually sit down and talk to them, they kind of open like, Oh, okay, that makes sense. But there are occasional people who will, continue to push back and you know say well you're just biased as a psychologist you don't know what you're talking about that's not biblical um and so with those people you know who aren't educated in psychology telling me that um i don't know psychology is not much i can <laughs> talk to them at that point so i just oh, yeah. say okay well i guess we'll have to agree to disagree <laughs> yeah it's Interesting. Uh, last question here from BDS. Um, how's it going? Uh, they say, what's an exciting discovery in psychology? This doesn't have to necessarily be apologetic related. What's something really exciting happening in psychology that's brand new right now? It's hard to say because uh, um, I don't really say anything is brand new, but maybe a, a couple of fields are really blossoming. 
Um, so one, kind of the study of virtue, a lot of psychologies, especially people's views of it has all been like, how do we cure mental health? But then you kind of have the new field of positive psychology. It's fairly new, but not necessarily, which looks at a lot of the positive side and virtues and how can we thrive and be more than just getting through this life without being too miserable and how can we really thrive in life? That's a really big growing area, especially looking at um, some virtues that we would consider kind of religious. And you have a lot of Christians in the field doing that research. So looking at gratitude um, and so kind of from a religious perspective and that's actually a study we're doing right now in our labs on gratitude to god and how that might be different from other fields but also you know looking at forgiveness and humility and these kind of virtues and so that would be a big fun area that's really growing and is interesting and then um, we already talked a lot about kind of the science of morality um, that's another one that's just blown up in the last 10 or 20 years and then the last one we didn't really talk too well we did talk about it um, kind of on bias, but more broadly and kind of decision making. And I would highly recommend the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, um, Nobel winning prize psychologist. Um, so won the Nobel Prize in economics because of how his work relates to behavioral economics. Um, but just thinking of our brain and decision making process as kind of a two level system, even though that's a Psychologists don't necessarily strictly view it that way. It's just kind of a heuristic, a shortcut to help us envision it. But we have kind of a system one and system two, he called it. And this is what most researchers in the field will refer to it as, where our system one is you know, where we make most of our decisions from. It's that quick kind of decision-making processes, whereas our system two is that slow, deliberate, thoughtful process. Um, and so just starting to get our heads more around that and how we really make decisions and how so many other factors are affecting our even even our system two decisions um, is really amazing and uh, very unexpected in many ways, which is always fun for me um, when we get things that at least aren't intuitively expected. They are kind of expected when you um, know the research and the literature and are making hypotheses, but you just take a second, you know, and just come up with something on your own. It's like, oh, I would pe expect people to think or act that way, but um, they do. So it's really neat and fun in that way. Yeah, man, it's, it's a really interesting conversation and hope to talk to you in the future. There's so much here that can be unpacked and I'm really excited to see uh, where your research takes you. Uh, anything that we didn't touch on that you want to bring up before we start to wrap things up here? Um, well, I see a question here on same-sex attraction. Yeah, go for it. Uh, and so maybe to answer that, I mean, just talk about sexuality in general, because that's a big topic. I've actually given a talk on um, sex as an apologetic. So this idea that God designed sex to function a certain way, and when we follow those guidelines, it actually leads to the best outcomes in terms of marriage, mental health, and all these other factors. So again, it doesn't necessarily prove God you know, to be consistent with what I was saying before, but it might be kind of subtle evidence to help support that. And so um, again, that biopsychosocial model um, applied to sexuality and we see kind of the same outcome. So uh, often people, I think we grow up, we tend, we see kind of cause and effect is very linear. This causes that, right? We shoot a pool ball, you know, ball, the cue ball hits whatever number and, you know, it's that direct causal effect. But a lot of times in psychology, we're, we're not just looking for a single cause or single effect. Um, 
we have pretty advanced statistical models and ways to look at multiple effects uh, and causes. And so, you know, we have mediated and moderated models where, you know, this causes this, um, which causes this, but this also causes that. And so that's usually the terms and how we talk about things in psychology, not necessarily saying that they're, um, can't always make causal inferences, but to say, here's the factors that affect it. And there is certainly a biological component that affects um, people's um, sexuality, um, but there are also other social, cultural, um, biological things as well um, that affect it. So um, it's, it's more complex than you often get with people yelling at each other on Twitter saying it is genetic, it's not genetic, we were born with it or we weren't. Like there, there's a lot of interacting factors with each other um, and, and it's a complex thing, but um, I think that's something Christians should not be afraid to affirm or accept that there are um, genetic and other biological factors that affect a person's sexuality or their, um, who they're attracted to. Um, again, that's what is, that doesn't necessarily mean what ought to be. And so to also be, not be scared of accepting what the science says in order to support our own view, which a lot of people aren't willing to do that. But I would say, don't be scared of that because it's, it's pretty clear that there is some sort of biological factor going on um, that affects it. But there are other things that interact with that. And so had something been different in the culture or their upbringing or whatever, and it's not even something that can always be controlled, maybe um, a person may end up with a different attraction. Um, and not just for same-sex attracted people, right? Even for many uh, heterosexual people, had something been slightly different in their trajectory, in their path growing up, that may have um, made them where they grew up and then had same-sex attraction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, this has been a really interesting conversation. Uh, there, there's so much stuff that is just so interesting to me. Um, really enjoyed this. If people want to follow you and what you're doing, Jay, how can they follow you? Yeah, um, I'm pretty, I wouldn't say necessarily active on social media, but I'm pretty present and easy to find. So you can look up, look me up by my name um, or psychopologist. Um, you know, you'll find links to my website there and uh, things like that. I haven't really been writing since the quarantine stuff going on, but I'm hoping to get back to that now that things are slowing down a little bit with my research um, and class schedule. So um, they can do that, and I, I'm pretty easy to um, get in touch with if people have further questions as well. Yeah, man, there should be links to Jay's Twitter and his website in the description. Uh, been a great conversation. Really enjoyed this. Um, if you enjoyed hearing apologetics, I encourage you to subscribe, like this video. You can follow us on Twitter at AA Apologetics, and you can look for us um, at Hearing Apologetics on Facebook, Instagram, um, TikTok, really anything. Um, we're on everything. And if you enjoy the show, please consider supporting patreon.com slash adhering apologetics. I think we're about 58% funded right now, something like that, something cool. I uh, appreciate everyone's support. Uh, Jay, this has been a great conversation, man. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, appreciate you spending an hour here with me. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Zach. Anytime. Maybe sometime we can flip the tables and I'll interview you. <laughs> Anytime, man. Anytime. You know how to reach me. All right. God bless everyone. Have a good one.